Well, welcome everybody to the Genesis podcast. In this episode, we have the great fortune of having not one, not two, but three venture capitalists from the Sydney area here to talk to us today about a little bit about what it's like to be in VC, but also help us answer some questions from the entrepreneur side about how to be best prepared for getting investment. So welcome everyone. So what I would love to do is just to introduce everyone. I'll let you introduce yourselves. So why don't we just go around the room quickly. You can tell me obviously your name, uh, where you work for, and maybe a little bit about what your firm specializes in. Hi, James. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. My name is Kate, and I'm an investment manager at One Ventures. So One Ventures is unusual in that it's a multidisciplinary VC firm. So on one end, we invest in biotech and healthcare, and on the other side, we do technology. And under that technology arm, we offer two different products. So we do both equity and debt. I've been with the firm now for about three and a half years. Started out my life as an accountant, moved over to Australia unemployed. Awesome. Um, also thought VC was a black box and not something I could ever get into. But then once I won, met One Ventures, kind of found a place for myself in the team and I've been loving it ever since. Amazing. Awesome. Ben. Yeah, hi, James. And do you want me to continue where I'm from and how I got here as well? That kind of thread? Yes. We'll probably awesome. leave that in as well. Awesome. So uh, <laughs> my, my name's Ben. I'm an investment analyst at Investable. So I'm the newbie to VC at this table. I've only been in there for 10 months. Um, so Investable has been around since about 2014. It started off as a angel syndicate that did pretty well. So they launched their, fir launched their first early stage fund in 2018. Uh, now we have two early stage funds, which are tech agnostic, but don't play in biotech, which I know Kate knows the, uh, the fun side of biotech there uh, in VC and why we might not play there. Uh, and then I'm actually on the climate tech fund. So we're a $100 million early stage fund looking at any hardware software that has a direct or indirect impact on reducing CO2 or equivalent emissions. Um, my background is a bit unusual. I studied biomedical engineering. I invented a medical device while at university. While that was going through its randomized controlled trials, I realized I was a useless salesperson and I needed to <laughs> learn to sell. Uh, so I ended up talking to some mentors of mine who gave me a job uh, selling their drinks at their startup called Shine Smart Drink, uh, which is now just, I think, goes by the name Shine Drink. So. I had an opportunity there to learn how a startup operates through to its first kind of more significant revenue and leading the sales team uh, and then moved on to, you know, my own thing, which was solution, which was a pun some doctors gave us uh, that just stuck. Uh, that medical device is now distributed internationally and is the official, we're the official supplier for a handful of teams as well. Um, but yeah, and lastly, because it's a mixed bag, I spent two years navigating Incubate, the accelerator program at the University of Sydney through COVID as their program manager. So I got to work with a lot of researchers nice. uh, who really wanted to work on getting their ideas out of the uni. Awesome. Isabella. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Um, my name is Isabella Rich and I'm a principal at OIF Ventures. Um, OIF Ventures is a seed and Series A VC. Um, we invest across technology, we're sector agnostic, um, and really the philosophy of how we invest is one, um, 
you know, we see the founders as someone we're going to be working with for the next 10 years. So do we, can we build a great relationship with the founders? Can, um, can they get a value from us and can we get value from them? Um, the second is, um, is, it, uh, is there traction in market? And typically where we invest is there is some proxy for traction, whether that be revenue customers that we can go and say, hey, do you love the um, product and do you think the opportunity is a good one? And then third, you know, do we think that this is an opportunity which is venture scale, um, which I think is a topic in itself. Um, we have a consolidated kind of investment pool. Uh, there's 11 uh, of us in the team and only about just over 30 investments and typical check size is between two to $6 million in first check. Um, our... My background, uh, I've been at the firm for three and a half years, similar to Kate. Um, prior to that, I was at um, BCG for four years in the US and Australia. And prior to that, I had my own startup. Um, and awesome. the genesis of my startup oh, was um, like uh, was <laughs> at Sydney Uni, um, where we incubated it and went through oh, the gosh. genesis program and actually won, yep. um, I think it was one of the first years of Genesis um, and one of the prizes that we won was to go and do an entrepreneurship course in Nice which I have to say was still one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> if, if we can get that back yeah. I am so keen. Was it the entrepreneurship course or going to Nice that was the highlight? Both. Well actually Nice was it was um, uh, it was actually when the attacks were on at Nice. Uh, oh, okay. It was wild. Anyway um, uh, but it was the program was unbelievable so thank you you're welcome <laughs> uh, yeah what can i say <laughs> i'll definitely do my best to see if we can bring some of that back because that sounds amazing okay what i would really like to know though is from the entrepreneur side we don't see you really into your world at all we only get to see things like shark tank and dragon's den and we go ooh, scary but i think it would really help just to know like what's it like on your side so if you could just maybe each of you think about what is a typical day in the life of VC? What do you spend your time doing? Who wants to go first? I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's um, way too hard to say what a day looks like. And that's not just some corny statement. I'd actually, for me, I'd break it down into two week blocks yeah. um, where I have an investment committee every two weeks. Uh, I'm looking at 50 to 60 top of funnel opportunities each week. Uh, I've got to break that down to, you know, maybe six to 10 meetings for 30 to 45 minutes and then pretty much debate, have a healthy debate with the rest of my team as to whether or not we should allocate the resources and time to taking that opportunity to, opportunity to our investment committee every two weeks. So it's basically a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of healthy debate, a lot of resource allocation and then, you know, I like to think of our team, the investment team, we're pretty much just pushing a boulder up a steep hill and we need the founders to help us do it because we're not the decision makers at the end. You know, we've got an investment committee that we present the idea to and they're ultimately the, the yes or no people. So it's our job to basically pitch it as best we can as well uh, to our ethereal people at the top as well. <laughs> so you have to pitch to your people? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. So. An entrepreneur will come pitch to you and then you have to take that and go pitch it onwards. Yep. So it's basically 
everyone's very time poor and we've got to pitch to the rest of the team to go, hey, I really like this one because of X, Y, Z. Uh, we need to take this forward. And it's not just myself if I find a good idea. It's also getting, you know, Tom or Patrick who are the fun heads on board. It's about getting the other analysts on board. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, I think Ben put it really well. When you come to a VC fund and maybe do your first intro on your company, that person at the other end of the table is a mere conduit for your story to go tell that to their investment committee. So the best thing you can really do is nearly put the words in their mouth that they need to hear. And I think come prepared to hit those marks, whether it's focusing on competition, on your business model, on market. Um, a lot of that is actually pretty standard. So the best use of time you can make uh, is putting those words into the VC's mouth to on your behalf <laughs> pitch. <laughs> okay, point taken. We have to put words in people's mouths. <laughs> I hope everyone has basically written that down. What about you, Kate? What's a typical uh, day, two-week block? How, how would you sort of describe a typical? Yeah. So I sit on a venture credit fund. So we move at a pretty quick cadence and we have investment committee every single Monday. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it usually takes us maybe 10 working days to get to a term sheet. So probably moving in weekly cycles with the team of four, we could be looking at up to two companies for term sheet on a biweekly basis. And I think my favorite part of my job and a factor of every day is we probably only spend 60% of our time at a computer. That other 40% is actually out in offices with the startups, um, getting to spend an afternoon alongside them to see how they operate, to meet members of their team. And probably one of my favorite things about my job. Fantastic. I think we'd all like to spend less time in front of front computers. Of a computer. yeah. <laughs> Especially after the last two years. Yeah. Isabella, what about you? Uh, at risk of repeating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's but, okay. Yeah. Consistency is great, you know. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, a day of a VC is split into really two parts, which is um, one, hearing from founders um, about their insight, being a tech and kind of sector agnostic fund, we will always say that the founder themselves are going to have way more expertise on the problem that they're solving. Where we can add value is kind of some of the functional support areas such as hiring strategy pricing that runs through all of different uh, types of businesses, whether you're construction tech, death tech, climate tech. Um, so uh, I think the first part is of kind of the day or week or year is um, learning from founders about the problem that they're solving, the opportunity, and I think most importantly, why they are best positioned to solve that problem. Um, and then the kind of second block I would talk to is uh, assisting the portfolio companies and taking an active role um, in in helping the companies that we have in our portfolio. Um, and that typically looks like um, probably an order of priority of, um, of the way that we see it, number one, customer introductions, number two, um, hiring, we've probably hired, you know, 80% of C-suite uh, into all of our C-suite into 80% of our companies, um, general stat strategy and advice, um, next round capital raise, and um, and flipping up and going to the US, which is kind of 80% of the portfolio. Wow. Okay. So is it? I've heard death tech. Did I hear you right then? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go on too many tangents, but I'm just intrigued. What exactly is death tech? 
do we that. We've got an awesome company in our portfolio uh, called Bear. Two guys who felt the pain, um, yeah. both of losing a family member, and then, uh, which is incredibly painful in itself, but then also the difficulty in um, in getting a cremation, and. Mm. Um, and so off the back of that, um, they came together and, and thought about how do we make the process once, which is one of the most, I mean, anyone is the most distraught in their whole life, mate. How can we make that process really, really simple? So um, uh, Bear is a cremation um, kind of digital offering, uh, which makes the process of uh, cremation both at need and prepaid a um, much better offering okay. than has ever been done well i can imagine that that solves a number of very pointy emotional issues as well yeah there yeah, it's um, not something anyone would really want to buy but i guess you can't really avoid it so thanks for sharing that probably an important point just on what isabella was talking to that i think the heart one of the hardest things when you're screening a startup is removing bias and I can imagine if you're looking at a death tech startup as an investor, you know, there's a level of kind of response and confrontation that you might have as well. And you've got to really navigate through that uh, yeah. and really look at kind of the pillars of the business as well. So, yeah, very cool. pretty heavy emotional stuff. Okay. What is the most stressful thing about being an investor? Yeah, I think one of the most stressful points and it's just something we've seen a lot in the portfolio because it's relatively new. We've kind of passed that two year mark is seeing all of those businesses where we came in on the last round out in market again raising. I think particularly in the current climate, things have gotten a lot more difficult and it takes a lot more proof points. But I think that's one way VCs again can jump in and really help in portfolio companies. That's our area of expertise. So whether yeah. it's helping you refine your pitch deck, your data room or just making warm intros into investors that we think would be right for you or could be value add as a partner is um, a way we can really help, but also really, really stressful because you're often working up against cash runway. So that's where time is money is really, really true. There really is a clock that you're working against. Wow. Um, I think for me, the most stressful is um, to Ben's point, we see, you know, 30, 40, 50 companies a week. Um, and these aren't just companies. Every single one is someone's passion, dream, and uh, and business that they've both invested time and resources in. Um, and I think the hardest thing is, uh, you know, you see 5,000 companies a year and you probably invest in three. And so how is it that um, we can also um, be helpful uh, and scale ourselves to the companies that we don't um, invest in, but to them, that conversation with a VC has been one of the most important conversations over the last six months and just kind of a recognition and I think it's always a tension of, um, you know, this meeting for someone is really, really, really important and balancing that with, you know, their acknowledgement also that, you know, um, how do we best deal with that seeing so many companies go through, um, come through our desk and um, and really wanting to help them all, um, it, you know, in a way that we can. Awesome. 
I sometimes get told that, well, I hear hearsay all the time about VCs will never tell you no. Is there a part of, you know, that stress that you mentioned that you don't want to say no because you feel like, wow, this is a huge deal for this person? How can I, I actually think them, I actually think it's the opposite. Yeah. I think the best VCs, um, look, I think there's many different approaches, so I'm not going to, I think my standard is a quick no is better than a long no. Yeah. Um, and so if this is something that we're not going to invest in, um, what I would like to hold myself to account to is getting back to them very quickly of why we're not going ahead yeah. um, and saying no early. Is there a situation where you've said no and then the startup comes back and then you've said yes? Yeah, 100%. Okay. There's like many situations where that happens. And I think it's like um, particularly, and I think everyone around the table um, has this where, you know, we invest at a certain stage. It's a risk-adjusted stage. So we've gone out to our investors and said, we're going to look for companies with a given amount of traction um, and, and then, then we'll be able to risk-adjust the investments. Um, there is so many companies that come to us that are probably a little bit pre that stage. Um, and so what I like to be able to do is say, to say, you know, if, if this is something we really like, um, the opportunity in the founding team, um, here are the kind of couple of things that it would be great to see. Um, yeah. And I would lo absolutely love you to come back in six months. And, and I actually think that that's um, a really, really optimal situation because um, inevitably a founder wants to know who a VC is and a VC wants to know a founder. And it's very difficult to do that in two weeks <laughs> when you're going through a process. It's much, much easier to do that over a six month period. Yeah. And so where we get the opportunity to do that, um, it, it kind of, it sometimes re uh, results in the best relationships. Yeah. Sounds like a dating experience. 100%. We're not getting <laughs> married today, man. We're not. They, we're not. Say, they say <laughs> that the average VC relationship lasts longer than the average marriage in the US. <laughs> and there's no divorce. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. If, if you're not doing well in your marriage, then maybe you should take up investing. <laughs> yeah. Ben, most stressful thing? Um, well, I'll quickly just on Isabella's point there about sure. trying to add value, I just... Yeah, I've, uh, I've encountered founders in the space, for example, who've actually spoken to uh, OIF uh, and Isabella herself who have had that positive experience and it's a great highlight. So VCs awesome. know that. Uh, so, you know, I learn from stuff like that and go, well, how can I provide a positive experience? It's maybe a no, but, you yeah. know, no for now. You know, how do they go off and, and kind of spread the word? Because it really does happen. And then you hear of the founders who have bad experiences just get ghosted uh, and then they love to share that they got ghosted by XYZ investors as well. So it's really important from our perspective to make sure we're really trying to add value because the word spreads, Australia is not very big. Yeah. Um, most stressful bit of my job, I think it's pretty hard, there's two, but I think the most stressful one, if I'm gonna differentiate from Kate and Isabella's answers are when you go through the ride as the investor yourself, you take it all the way through to IC, which is investment committee. Uh, so those ethereal people at the top who say yes or no. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that as well. You're, you know, you're basically the internal champion for a founder. You think you've got it. You think the founder's got it. You've coached them through. And then the investment committee says no. And then 
you kind of like, I remember one instance I just like laid there on the floor in my study, just like, oh, damn it. Because I, (laughs) so, uh, you know, every now and then that, that happens. And then, you know, again, to, to some of the points Isabella made, you've got to pick up the phone and you've got to be quite radically, radically candid. You've got to be kind and you've got to be to the point. You don't just shoot them down. You've got to really deal with the fact it's going to be an emotional experience for them as well. Uh, and tell them why it's a no at this stage and give them the constructive feedback to move forward. Uh, And I think anyone entering this space who doesn't like confrontation uh, and confrontation in the sense of just telling someone politely, hey, this is why, uh, and not beating around the bush, um, you know, is is something you really have to get used to. Awesome. Super glad no one said podcast interviews. (laughs) But that's all really, really cool stuff. Um, I think it, often people don't really think about the other side. Um, from you know being a founder myself, the entrepreneur is constantly sort of looking inward at the company. And I think it's sometimes a bit difficult to imagine, oh, that's the process you have to go through. Or you have all those limitations on you. Or you have this stressful meeting. Uh, we don't see any of that and understand how we could actually assist. I would like process. to say, we're, I'm not trying to, I don't think any of us are also trying to play the world's smallest violin here. I think the founders <laughs> are... Uh, the ones who are, they're the ones who really are going to have a, a lot of stress going through the fundraising process. Definitely, so, yeah. definitely. And to that end, um, I'd like to move into a little bit more detail about fundraising. So I did sort of send out a few, you know, hints that you might be able to send me some things I could ask, which will help skill up some people. Like, what are the things you wish people had been prepared for? So we're going to start that process by going over a few of the things which you guys have sort of intimated to me that we need to investigate. So one is, uh, why now? So my gut feeling here is people don't necessarily come across as really hitting the nail on the head of, I need to raise funds now because of X, Y, Z. So is this something that you see as a common issue? I'm open to anybody here on the table. Yeah, I think one for me that I always ask founders is where is this opportunity sit on the adoption curve? And what I mean by that is, you know, for example, your prospective customers might be greenfield opportunities. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're not displacing a competitor or a legacy system. You're the first to educate them on a digital solution to change how they do something manually today. And for us, that's a really exciting opportunity to be digitizing an archaic facet of an industry. But if the person you're selling a sophisticated IoT device into doesn't even use the CRM system yet, maybe it's too early on the adoption curve for that level of technology within that industry. Yeah. And I think a really good way to approach this question in your pitch is when you're talking about the size of the market opportunity, back that up by talking about the market drivers. That translates to what are the catalysts or the tailwinds um, supporting the adoption of your product or technology and market. And that could be things like changing consumer tastes. It could be a change in regulation that's encouraging or for the first time allowing the use of technology in certain areas. You know, maybe it's even as granular as the incumbents in market are now facing a sexy new startup and need to start to adopt technology to be able to take them on. Yeah. And for us, that's something that gets us really excited. And we want to make sure that you understand that because it's essentially you understanding your pitch to customers. And yeah. help. And like like Isabella said earlier, you are the expert in your field. So help us understand that. Awesome. 
And to that end, Isabella, problem solution. You mentioned that, you know, you're not necessarily domain experts in everything, which makes sense. I'm not a domain expert in everything in the universe. Um, my head hurts enough as it is. So what do you like to see um, when someone brings you an opportunity in terms of how they're describing how this thing works? Or do you even want to know how it works? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, one of my colleagues and founders of OIF Ventures wrote a book called The Gummus, the Gummus, the Dumbest <laughs> Guy at the Table. The Gummest Guy. <laughs> um, and um, for those who haven't read it, uh, you definitely should. It's by um, uh, absolute legend called David Chain, uh, and his name's David Chain. Um, and I think that kind of sums up uh, how you should come into a VC meeting. And the book is not about how to come into your first VC meeting, but um, but it is we we are not domain <laughs> experts. So how do you come in and treat us as the dumbest guys or girls <laughs> at the table and make it really simple to understand and come on the journey with you um, around the problem that you're solving. And I would liken it to, you know, when we're issuing a term sheet to founders, we'll actually, we'll actually suggest up front that we have an hour, an hour and a half meeting to run through all of the terms. And that's, you know, we don't expect all of founders to uh, to understand all of the venture capital terms. Um, and that's something that we like to go through in Laban's terms with founders. And similarly, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> we are not the experts in biotech or construction tech or even you know, death tech. And so coming in and just putting it um, very simply of uh, what is it, why someone really cares you know, how do you see the opportunity? What's the initial go-to-market? Um, is is something that makes it much easier for VCs then to get really excited about and share across the team. Yeah. So I'm getting the impression that people shouldn't be coming at you with complicated diagrams and a lot of jargon. Yeah. I mean, like, I have no doubt it will be backed up in, um, <laughs> in lots of incredible research and We'll inevitably dive into that in kind of the meetings after, but yeah. um, but to begin with, um, keep it simple. Yeah, keep it simple. There's a journalistic expression of treating your audience like they're twelve. It definitely applies here, and I think some founders think they're going to insult us if they treat us like we don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's honestly for just cognitive ease and fatigue of seeing a lot of different ideas, particularly from agnostic funds or funds with kind of broad landscapes of where they invest. Just keep it simple. Treat us like we're 12, 12. Treat us like we're the dumbest guys or girls in the room. No disparaging to 12-year-olds, I'm sure. <laughs> Sorry, if you're 12 and you're listening to this, you're actually quite intelligent. Um, we'll, we'll put a more positive spin on 12-year-olds somehow, I promise. And I think just to add to that, because I don't want to make us all sound, or me, uh, me particularly, that, um, that we don't know anything. I think it's a specification of there is deep domain expertise, and then there's where VCs get involved. And um, I actually was just reading a term sheet this morning that Kate had put together for one of our portfolio companies. And um, 
one of the things that uh, was talked about is the ways that we can uh, and uh, one ventures can add value and and I think that is true in that collectively around the table there are other areas and that's mostly you know how to build and scale a business that we really can um, you know we've seen it across 30 50 100 kind of companies we can offer advice there but um, from a domain expertise uh, side of things like you definitely are the um, the most informed in the room mm-hmm. should you wait until you're ready for investment before reaching out or should you just get in touch and it, is there a right time or a wrong time to get in touch how do, how do well, it's kind of like the awkward dance scenario you know when do i go and approach the other person and say shall we dance so to speak yeah so we heard isabella talk to it earlier of this idea of you know there's two weeks and there's six months and there's you know you kind of establish rapport that way so i'm going to counter everything here by saying that you know as on the investment team you're pretty time poor so your intent and want uh, your desire to do things also gets countered by the fact that You've got a lot to do mm-hmm. as well. But ultimately, you know, I like going to events, top of funnel stuff, which I mean, as early as you are in your journey, you're thinking about something, you know, don't be afraid just to come up, tell me the problem you're thinking about solving, even if you don't have a solution yet. You know, I think establishing rapport, building a relationship uh, is super important. Yeah. I know there's a, a VC, who Mark Suster, who coined the term lines, not dots where you have multiple data points, so multiple meetings with a VC, so you get a trend line, VC can see the momentum, build that trust. Ultimately, what he is saying there is people are more trusting when you have a relationship. You know, they yeah. can see the challenges you've overcome. Uh, it's you know, a bit easier for them to convey your characteristics as a founder, which in early stage investing, you know, we're looking at things where they're pre-revenue, you know, it's very technical, you know, they're on the brink of maybe scaling up. There's no science risk anymore. They're looking at engineering risk, for example. So we're looking at that person and going and asking ourselves, can that person in front of us overcome all the engineering risk ahead? And the best way to help us overcome that from a character trait perspective is, you know, get us in on the journey as early as possible. I've heard that some investors also like very succinct monthly updates might just be an email saying done this working towards this is that something you guys like or i like them i get a lot of them um (laughs) i don't reply to pretty much any of them but i read every single one of them um and then when there's a flag when they're asking me for something or they're putting it out there hey i need help with this and it is something i can help with then i will reply but i do you know keep abreast of those things and uh i do tell the founders quite openly when I say add me to that list. Um, I probably won't reply to all emails. If you need something from me, be quite direct uh, straight away in, in, yep. in an email separately. Yep. Okay, great. Okay, you had um, an issue with people not really saying what they want to achieve. Yeah. Do you want to expand on that? I think one of the important things for us when somebody enters a meeting, because, you know, by the time they come to us, they're series A and beyond. So they're really on that cadence, on that treadmill of raising every maybe 18 months. So what I really want to understand today is once you get this money in, how will it be spent? What will it be spent on? And what do you think are the milestones you need to achieve in this business to raise that next price round, to bring on that new lead for your series B, for example? 
And those milestones could be everything from a revenue threshold. Maybe it's launching a new product or moving into an international market. But I think because it's such a um, swift process, like I said, you've 12 to 18 months to prove that out. You've got to know day one as you start to spend where that's going to go. And I think that also kind of ties into the fact that taking on venture capital isn't for everyone. Yeah, It does mean that you're signing up for rapid growth expectations and a requirement to spend aggressively and continuously to reach an agreed milestone to raise more venture capital and so on and so on it goes until you reach an eventual exit opportunity. So it's pretty relentless and you need to have a true passion and the time and support of family and friends to take on all that comes with this over the long term. Awesome. Uh, What about traction? I've had someone say traction data, perhaps not the most strongest thing that people present with all the time. It really depends on the idea, if I'm honest. And this is where, you know, I haven't been able to get an objective kind of response myself internally looking at things. It depends on the idea. So say, for example, uh, we're looking at something out of a university lab, the the traction we're looking for, um, depending on how much they're raising, right, and depending what these milestones going forward are and what they're trying to achieve. A lot of variables. You know, it can be, you know, hey, we've got this idea. Here is the validation we've done to date that is externally validated. So that's one of the things we always push for with an early deep tech idea is, cool, you've said you've done it. Um, who else has seen you do it? That's yeah. part, part of the DD. Um, Who else know, has seen this party trick that you're claiming you can do? Exactly. Uh, and awesome. then, you know, we're re- really looking in deep tech ideas. Have they overcome the, the science risk? Uh, so are we looking at things where, you know, there's, you know, fundamental scaling engineering risks ahead? And we're often not experts in certain areas, say, for yep. example, scaling up hydrogen tech. So we're engaging the experts on our advisory board the startup founders are putting us in touch with references. We're engaging everyone and bringing all the experts to the table to map that out. Software ideas, completely different. Uh, again, so traction, again, depending on stage, can just be, you know, very early stages. Have they got, uh, a, again, a certain level of validation? If they're raising a larger check size, you know, they have to put, with runs on the board, they have to bring that data to the table now. So they have to say, hey, these are the predicted lifetime values we're achieving. This is the acquisition costs. Here's our retention rate. And we're starting to map out all those data points as well. Okay, so depending on what kind of venture you have, the traction is kind of different. Yep. Isabella? Um, yeah, and I might pick up Kate's point because I think it's a really uh, pertinent one, particularly in this time, which is... Um, I mean, traction and where you want to get to. I think that if I take a step back and you feel free to delete this, but... Um, <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure we don't delete it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I think that the origin of venture capital has been... Uh, traditionally, businesses has operated in an environment where, you know, you sell a good... You make a you make some kind of profit. You use that profit, reinvest in the business. You grow your business from there. You know if it's a milk stand or if it's a construction site, whatever it may be. Um, 
you know, this idea of venture capital and fundraising has come into, um, you know, over particularly um, into the forefront of the last 20 years because we've realised that um, you can get outsized returns for businesses which can scale. Um, and so if you put a dollar into the business, um, that dollar will get you three or four dollars, which will allow you in a market which uh, you're facing competition to scale more quickly at margins which are very high. So when you turn off kind of, you know, that additional, you know, fundraising, you will still have a very profitable business. And um, and I think, you know, where you come to us, it's really important to, and this talks to both traction and where you want to get to, um, you know, what is it that makes your business something that you require additional funding over and above the revenue you're going to generate from the inherent business? Um, and at what point do you believe that you'll get to profitability? And if not, uh, and if you want to continue to raise, like what is what is the justification of that? Um, because that is, um, you know, it, there are a few situations, um, you know, maybe Uber because of the, the scale or deep tech being something that requires very capital intensive that requires multiple raises. Otherwise, you know, we say to ourselves on the traction point, um, okay, what do the unit economics look like today? Understand the requirement for funding, but the end state should be really profitable unit economics, particularly for technology businesses. Um, and so around the point of traction, we're looking at, you know, justification that, um, you know, there is a market for your product and there's customers and there's no better reference or testimonials than customers. Um, and the second is on a unit economic basis that inherently the business is one that at scale will be a very profitable business. Mm. Awesome. Okay, I would like to ask some questions that have been sourced from our community here at Genesis. Uh, some of them are very interesting, so we might throw these out the table. Uh, the first one is really quite interesting, and it goes a little bit like this. What is the purpose of your investment in our startup? <laughs> I think that that, um, like I would say that relates back to you. And I would ask the question, what is the purpose of, giving up, I mean, there's a trade-off between equity, time, and amount of money raised, mm. time being time it takes to fundraise. And so if you're willing to, like, will the additional funding that you require and expertise that come with that justify the dilution that you're going to have in your business? And in a debt sense, it's typically not as dilutive. So um, I think there's ways around the, the plug, equity. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> <laughs> But on an equity front, um, I would kind of ask the I would ask the question awesome. to you, uh, which is what justifies the dilution, and is it? And I think it's both capital and expertise that yeah. uh, the, the venture community can bring. Sounds like we're going with the assumption that well, the purpose is kind of from our side, kind of obvious. This is our business. This is what we do as an investor. You know, we. Yeah. I think one one of the things that I now being in this 10 months, something that I've, I've really learned, which is quite obvious when you're in the space, but doesn't get probably enough airtime is, you know, for a lot of particularly young founders coming out of university, they, 
sometimes don't realize that we're ultimately stewards of capital, which is, you know, probably mm. an unusual line for new people uh, to the space. But what that means is we've got uh, our own investors yeah. and we have an obligation to our investors to also give them a return uh, on their investments. So, you know, we're looking to invest in founders who have a audacious idea that's going to grow. But ultimately, you know, we're investing on the behalf of other people who we have a duty to, you know, try and get a higher return on their investment in us. So there's a chain there uh, of kind of value creation, yeah. um, which some founders, you know, as obvious it probably is to us around the table, you know, they actually didn't realize they just thought, hey, you're on an investment team, you must have tons of money. <laughs> <laughs> And you're investing your own. Ben disappears. <laughs> a big pile of money. He just takes his place. Blah, 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 blah. blah. So, no, it's... Uh, money is talking to me. So, from that angle, so all of Isabella's points uh, and Kate's points have been spot on. Um, but there's also the purpose of, you know, what we're doing behind the scenes as well is that. But I, I think it's fair to say that most people that are in VC and are investing uh, these funds, you'll find their purpose in doing so is really passion like uh, i haven't found anyone that is in this because they're a mercenary they're looking for returns i've yeah. just come mm. across missionaries they're doing it because this is a space that they love they're excited they enjoy their job they're happy to get up early stay up late and you know yeah. that's really we're, we're lucky to be in this position where there's investors who invest in us we get to do a job we're incredibly passionate about which is investing in founders and working with founders awesome I hope the person who has answered this question is satisfied with that because <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Kate, did you want to add anything to that? Or? I could just paraphrase what they've said. As you can understand, VCs are very good at that. <laughs> but, but I won't at the risk of All right, myself. Okay, cool. <laughs> How do you act when things aren't going according to plan? Yeah, I think I'll feel that one particularly coming from a position where we provide debt to companies. So we take a general security on the business. And I think it's probably one of the biggest misconceptions about a product like debt. Um, when it comes to startups, unfortunately, there just is very little um, insolvency value in, you know, MacBooks and desks, <laughs> unfortunately. So I think if a business is starting to struggle, rather than actually foreclosing, taking the keys and thinking we could do it better, we're actually working with everyone else around the table to reach the best outcome for all shareholders involved. And I think more often than not, that actually kind of equates to a sale more often than not. And just kind of working with the um, company and everybody involved to do that before runway runs out. Because I think one of the biggest issues is people are, are too slow to pull up the lever on spend. If mm. you do that three months out, you likely won't have any time to, to um, get a competitive bidding process in place for a sale. So it's actually um, acting in the medium term and making that decision six to nine months out, which obviously is, is a really, really difficult choice and something that's left up to the founder. And I think everyone else around the table is just there to support through that. But ultimately, it is their decision. Yeah. Ben? Oh, I, I think uh, I don't really have any more to add than uh, what, I, what I said before, if I'm honest, in terms of purpose. I think otherwise I'm just going to repeat <laughs> sure everything thing. you've just heard. <laughs> so you're in agreement with Kate on that. Uh, yeah, I think um, what, one of the things that founders, so coming from not a venture debt side on, on the runway piece is, uh, you know, they really, you know, 
the optimism uh, and things, you, you've got to be really mindful of that and you've got to trust the numbers at times, particularly when you've got runs on the board where you do have, you know, just counter this with early stage investing, you get a financial forecast and it's wrong, basically. Uh, mm. And what we're looking at there is the assumptions behind growth. You know, we're going to do our own analysis as well yeah. uh, to all those points that Isabella mentioned earlier. Um, but when you've got those runs on the board and when you're looking at things, really, they need to trust the numbers. They need to go, all right, you know, three months from now or six months from now, you know, we're going to be out of runway. What does the fundraising process actually look like? It's not a good idea to, to play it, uh, you know, wait till the last stage to, to raise yeah. funds. Uh, you really want to get in there early because, you know, as to, to the points mentioned earlier, you know, the way our job works is quite often prioritization of resources. We're all very busy. We can't just drop everything else we're looking at to help out. We really need to get across this as soon as possible so we can allocate resources in the future. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like the entrepreneurs have really got to be on top of it. Yep. Know the process and work yep. the process rather than just turn up and go, hey, by the way, we're running out of cash. What do we do? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, you know, portfolio management. So we get monthly updates from our startups of varying levels of intensity. Uh, the bigger one, which happens quarterly, you know, really looks at those kind of numbers and those reporting kind of metrics. We catch up with them. We talk it through. So we do our best to get across it. But, you know, we like to think that the founders can always pick up the phone, give us a call and let, let us know where they're at. And I think I, I would just add two things to that. Um, in a majority of startups will go through tough times. Mm -hmm. And um, as a VC um, and, and OIF, um, we hold ourselves accountable to can do we continue to add value to every company? Um, you know, no matter if they're, uh, the go one or canvas of the world or, or kind of the smaller companies. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that a VC can bring is um, that uh, that person on the other side of the phone to say, uh, you know, to be, to say, actually, don't worry about it. You, like, it's fine. Keep going as you are. Or, hey, um, thanks for bringing this up let's set up time to go through and workshop this. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is something that, you know, it, it founder's job can be very lonely at times and you need to keep the momentum of the organisation but having an objective point of view um, just to say, hey, like, have you thought about X and Y when things aren't going to the, into plan is, is really valuable. Um, and then the second thing that I would say is, and this is one of the things that I tell any founder that uh, is looking to partner or we're looking to partner with them at OIF is um, for any VC that you are talking to, um, ask them to speak to the companies and the founders of the companies that unfortunately haven't succeeded. And I think wow. it is very telling um, and you get, it's very easy to be a VC when everything is going to plan. Um, and the company's going, and, you know, the company's going from one level to another. I think that if you are going to partner with someone for three, four, five, six years, what you want to understand is what happens when times aren't going as well, and and how they can be helpful. So, um, 
you know, you can always ask that of us and I would employ you to ask that of any VC that you're uh, and partner that you're looking to bring on board. Yeah. Just just uh, one more point there. Going back to the marriage analogy we heard <laughs> earlier, yeah. I think um, if you break your leg, you're not going to hide it from the person that you're married to, right? You're not going to just right. limp around, yeah. right? So, you know, if you bring it up with, v, you know, the VC team that you're working with, you know, for everyone listening, you heard all the mixed backgrounds, you know, around the table. Mm. You know, we have got experience or we know people who've got experience is quite often our LPs. So our investors also are willing to help out. So the sooner we know that there's a potential fire, the sooner we can help you put out the fire and keep going. And I think the the risk some founders have is they worry about telling us, but we are right. really there. You know, we've invested in them. We're here to, we understand there's hurdles. So tell us about them yep. and we can help you get over them. So if you smell smoke, call the fire brigade. Yeah. <laughs> Don't try and hide it. Don't try hide it. I Just think I've seen that in an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Principal Skinner tries to hide a fire from his mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baked, was it baked hams? Yeah, uh, steamed the, hams. Steamed hams, that's it, yeah. <laughs> See more of the houses on fire. No, mother, that's just the northern lights. <laughs> All good lessons come back to The Simpsons. Yes. <laughs> so, you've, yeah, you've heard that first. Yeah. Do not do what Principal Skinner did. You must <laughs> alert the authorities immediately. If you if take you one thing fun. today. <laughs> yeah, if you take anything away, it's like raise your hand for help when you realize that you need help and you can't solve it yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I think that really sort of sets it apart from, I guess, my early reflections of venture capital was watching Shark Tank where they all seem quite aggressive. And, you know, it's like, would I want to swim with a shark? No. Am I likely to phone one of these guys if I'm in trouble? No. That's like asking the shark to rescue you. They're not going to do that. They're just going to bite your legs off. So it's really, really refreshing to hear that actually, and it makes a lot of sense that you guys, because you have a vested interest in success, really want to help the business. I mean, why would you not want to? And tell you what, after watching Shark Tank and seeing how much they dilute <laughs> the founders they're investing in, uh, investing in, it's ridiculous. Like uh, if a founder comes to us uh, and they are asking, say, a million dollars and they want to give us 50% of the company, we do not want to dilute them that much because, you know, at all, you know, as an early stage founder, uh, as an early stage investor rather, you know, we understand that there's a lot of emotion. There's a roller coaster coming. Yeah. There's other investors. There's future rounds coming. We need to make sure the founders looked after as well. So, yeah. on the Shark Tank point, whenever I see some of those terms getting offered to the founders, I just worry about what the future holds for them and where their motivations are going to lie. Because over diluting them means they not only lose, you know, a stake in the in in the company or yeah. the, the stake gets reduced, but quite often means they lose control and, and direction in the future. And that's something I think, particularly here in Australia, uh, venture capital does really well. I've never seen a term sheet come across my desk where I go, oh no, that, that looks pretty nasty for the founders. It tends to yeah. be quite favorable and you know quite friendly. That makes a lot of sense. Is there kind of like a recommended best practice range of equity for let's just say someone who's never got investment before and it's, the, it's their first first time interacting with you guys, what should they really be expecting as maybe like a pre-seed or like the first check? Well, I think in pre-seed, uh, we tend to deal predominantly with what's called a safe note. So a simple agreement for future equity. And that's because they're small, they're nimble, they need to move quick. Uh, and basically what that means is we're not doing what's called a price round where we're purchasing shares directly. We're getting a, basically a future promise from the founder 
that when they issue shares, we're going to get shares in a future round. So it's right. typically the pre-seed um, and the valuation is done by kind of what's done. It's called what's called a post money cap or a cap on, on the safe, which is, you know, basically a way to make sure the VC gets rewarded for taking the risk early on. Right. Uh, at seed stage, anywhere on, on our on our end, usually between uh, we're looking at rounds where there's a 15 to 20 percent uh, position being taken by all the investors. Okay. Uh, an investor, we don't typically take the whole round. We're happy to lead the rounds, but we like the idea of, you know, we heard around the table all the additional support the other VCs can bring. We like the idea that the founders can not just have us to help put out the fires, but other people to help yep. put out the fires, introduce them to customers. So we tend to co-invest with other funds as well. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think the uh, couple of principles. Number one, um, I think all of us around the table don't want to be majority shareholders, um, that we invest in founders and therefore we believe that founders need to have ma majority stake in the company. I think I would, inst as, a, as a founder, I would never come with a, a specific price. I think the best way to go is to let the market decide. Um, at, at the risk of, you know, this is what we do every day. Um, we want to get to a win-win solution. And uh, and so uh, I would never come with a price. And I think the third thing is instead of um, thinking about it as how much should I dilute myself and how much should I raise, uh, I would think about it as like how much do I need to get to the next stage right. of either profitability or that I can demonstrate to um, someone that um, I, at a higher valuation, can take more money and and then work backwards if that's kind of a win-win for both an investor and a founder. Um, I think coming and saying, I want to raise 2 million because I want to dilute myself, you know, 15 or 20% um, and then assuming a valuation, my first question would be, why 2 million? Um, right. And how long is that going to last you? Yep. I think those, those are some great points. Uh, yeah, I think the, the key thing, you know, to take away from that uh, on, on the dilutionary perspective or comment is, you know, just if someone drops uh, some terms on the table where, I feel, where you feel you're over diluted, uh, I think maybe it's potentially about getting back to basics, thinking about what you, what you need to move forward. And then also asking the question, is this investor right for me as well? Like you shouldn't be feeling the pressure to get married to the first investor to give you a term sheet. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, here in Australia, everyone's pretty friendly um, and, you know, everyone talks and can introduce you to, to new people as well. Awesome. So one thing a founder is going to have to face is at some point I have to start the capital raising process. How much time is it going to take me to complete this raise to get the money in the bank? Is there kind of like an average? Um, love to hear sort of your experiences with how long it takes a, an entrepreneur to actually get this done. Obviously, they may start working on it before you guys see them. So maybe we just focus on the bit that you see. Yeah, I can kick off and maybe speak to venture credit and then you guys can give the equity point of view. So the beauty of venture credit, and there is a loss, <laughs> mostly <laughs> it being non-dilutionary, but it's a much quicker and more simple process than raising equity. Um, the way it actually shapes up, so if you look at how it's used in Europe and the US where it's been around for about 30 years, it's probably one third of around two thirds equity. And what the most important factor there for the debt investor is 
you know, who is around the table, who are those equity investors. So I usually say tack debt on to the end of the process, kind of be at a point where you're collecting term sheets on leads for your equity. And that's when you should start looking at debt because it factors so much into our decision making process. And then I think for us from kind of meaning a company, getting to term sheet probably takes two to three weeks. And then right. from thereafter, we'll run our legals in parallel with our final stage of DD. So from signing term sheet, we can have funds in bank account in about six weeks. Okay. Does that sound quicker than equity? I'm guessing it is from what you've said. Well, I think um, it really depends, again, on the tech uh, that you're looking at and where you right. get comfort. So, you know, we've done a, you know, the, a business which hasn't been announced yet, but that was a very quick, for example, from initial meeting to uh, approval from the investment committee and term sheet. Uh, that was you know, very quick, about two weeks. Um, oh, okay. And then, but then if we're looking at a deep tech idea where all of a sudden I have to learn about catalytic coated membranes in <laughs> hydrogen. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, Our next you know, podcast should be on that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that in two weeks. And I think okay. the hindrance there on both sides from term sheet to close <laughs> and from initial meeting to IC more often than not, the, the bit that slows it down, other than the the depth of the technology and trying to wrap that my head around it as well and understand the commercials, is predominantly just the founder hasn't prepared to, to often yeah. move quick. So they haven't got the right documentation in place. They haven't got a data room established. So on the front end, you know, if they don't have references and a data room ready to go, there's often a lull. Uh, and a pause waiting for that to happen and always happy to help and say this is what goes in a data room or this is what I might need from from you to help me present to my investment committee but when they've got everything good to go it's quick and then on the legal DD side um, again it's just depends on the mechanism so safe notes tend to be a lot quicker if it's a price equity round uh, a bit slower because there's quite a few additional documents that need to get rounded off and finalize. Uh, and in that point, the founders who engage lawyers who uh, have history of working with startups and other founders at that stage tend to move a lot quicker. Uh, I've noticed that founders who sometimes deal with the, the lawyer or the attorney who's never dealt in this space before often come back on terms which are just confusing for us and our yeah. our legal uh, team where they just get confused and things get delayed so uh, that's the other the other thing a founder can look at is really looking at an attorney or a law, law firm who knows what they're doing and has a track record working with startups awesome so one thing i really wanted to ask you guys because you see obviously a lot of founders is are there clear differences in the approach or mentality between people who run raise funds successfully and people that don't do they have particular habits do they do certain things? It's a really good question. Um, who Reminds. wants to take it? I, I think like <laughs> I think there's two parts to it, uh, and I th- so there's obviously founder and business, and everyone's yeah. on equal playing field, and that's ever outside of everyone's control. So I won't talk about it. I think what's in your control um, around a process. There's a couple of things that um, I would say is like pointers of how to run the best process possible outside of the things you can't control, which is business. And I think it's, um, number one, we can move very quickly. You know, 
to your point, you know, we can with the shortest time, uh, shorter first meeting to funding has been a week and a half. However, I would tell all founders leave six months um, yeah. to right. raise money, and that is because you don't want to be in a position where you've got three months runway left, and um, you you have your backs against a wall, and a VC can you know it, it's then having to operate in a time frame that is um, that is compressed. Uh, because of uh, lack of planning, I think number one, that's it's just not a good practice to get into. Yeah. Um, so I would leave six months before capital raise. Um, I would be a, clearly communicate the problem and idea. Um, run a streamlined process. I think for a founder, this is the best way to get the best possible price. Uh, if you run all investors to um, to one timeline, then uh, you don't face issues where someone's given you a term sheet. There's an expiry date on the term sheet before the next investor, um, you know, uh-huh. is in a position to give a term sheet. So you want to get all term sheets aligned, so then you can actually have a conversation of, okay, who do I want to take and what's the what price kind of what's the price range. Um, And then I think the fourth and last is um, just make sure that you have an understanding of what data a VC is going to ask for prior to the process. Um, So it makes you it makes a VC feels feel like you have an understanding of the process and all of the kind of information that you probably need for a C to series A in terms of due diligence is online. There's so many resources for it. Um, so I think it's something that you can do quite easily that makes it, the process much quicker um, from our side of things. So those are the four yeah. points. So what I'm drawing out of that is preparation is key. Yes. Being, being prepared <laughs> yeah, yeah. for this, not just turning up and going, I want money, what do I do? And I think the fifth to that point, last one, is like knowing how why you're raising the amount that you're raising. Yep. And you know, that you've thought through in your mind that the dilution is going to be a trade-off for an outside return because you're giving mm-hmm. up shares yeah. in your business yeah. to do the raise. So to come and say, I'd love $2 million, and someone to say, well, why $2 million, and how long will that last for and not have an answer to that um, is something that makes, I think, it, people quite wary. Yeah, so they should come with a plan saying, this is my plan, this is why it costs $2 million. this is where we get to. And they've yeah, got this the documentation actually you know, ready. So you mentioned like preparedness, having a data room. Yeah. As one of the things. Yeah, no, I think uh, there's a variety of, I was just going to say an analogy before Isabella kicked off. Uh, there's so many different analogies or examples. I was just going to say the, the Shrek scene where he says onions have layers. Uh, there's so <laughs> many different layers to yeah. what can speed a process up or slow it down that it's, it is uh, probably, probably pretty tough to comment on specifics other than prep, you know, understanding the questions uh, different VCs ask um, at different stages. And yeah, most of that is available online. I think most most VCs as well, you know, they walk through what their investment process looks like on their website. So I know if you go to ours, it tells you what it looks like, what we yeah. do. Um, and then in terms of data rooms, uh, again, a quick Google or Ecosia, if you're more environmentally <laughs> friendly, uh, will will kind of tell you, you know, what's kind of required in a data room at different stages, and that's not a promise that you're going to get it 100 percent right. We still might ask for additional things, right. but I think one founder I saw do this really well, 
you get a lot of VC, uh, a lot of VCs ask a lot of questions and we're not all that special. We kind of ask similar questions uh, to the other VCs you're talking to. Um, so don't be afraid to compile a fact sheet of common questions. FAQ uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. It really helps and it helps us if we go in the data room and then we just see, hey, there's an FAQ. Here's the common questions that they're getting asked. Awesome. I was going to ask all those very complicated questions. Not really. Uh, you know, they tend to be quite typical uh, and quite predictable. So start to build those up as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I think some founders also have an unfair advantage in that they have kind of a natural talent for pitching. So they might be a great storyteller or maybe in their past life they've worked in sales, so they've got a lot of practice. Yeah. So I kind of say to founders who worry about that, start out on the VCs who aren't necessarily your first choice and maybe a VC that you know well enough to provide friendly feedback oh. and then help improve and refine your pitch from that. Someone to practice with. Exactly. And yeah. then... But, you know, practice, I think, under the real conditions, maybe somebody who's number 15 on your on your list of investors awesome. you want to approach and you'll be able to measure your success there and maybe follow on meetings or follow up questions that you secure. And then I think graduate to your, you know, your top five dream list of investors. Yeah. So reflecting on this, what I'm hearing is like timeframes, ex manage your expectations as an entrepreneur as to how long this process is going to take and then research and practice and prepare the process so that by the time you actually get to meet those dream investors, this is not all new. You should have a good understanding of what is on your side of the table as investors, what's expected from us. Yep. And mm -hmm. we can't do much about the business side of things because that's just out of our control. So that's really good. Okay, one more question. And again, this goes to, you know, you have investors. Those investors are expecting that money back at some point, I'm guessing, because um, this is, you know, business, not charity. So... Is it important to talk about exits and when? When in this process do you start to sit down and go, this is the reality of our business at some point, we have to make a sale or we have to extract you know, cash from the entrepreneur's business to give it back to the investors. So when do you start talking about that? Oh, that's a, a picture that needs to be painted pretty early on. I think the best, personally, I find the best thing to do, particularly with some of these deep tech ideas that, uh, we've invested in, we communicate that very early on that we're going to be as part of a part of your journey as long as we can. Uh, in some regards, you know, and in some industries, we don't have to look at, you know, a exit in terms of a acquisition or an IPO or, you know, one of those traditional senses. There's also the secondaries uh, market where we can sell our shares to, to another investor, which in a lot of these deep tech ideas as well, you know, they're going to hit a point where, you know, they're not really venture anymore. They're looking at, you know, more traditional kind of private equity funding rounds. You know, they're starting to move up into large infrastructure yeah. where majority stakes do get taken. And, you know, that might be the position we leave, uh, leave the journey, so to speak. Yeah. But we just communicate that very early on. Uh, you know, I think that's the best thing to do. Tell the founders, this is the life of our fund. Founders, that's probably a very important question to ask a VC. You know, what is, you know, how long is your fund uh, going to be around for? What's the life of your fund? What stage are you at in your fund? When do you expect a return on investment? They're all questions we're more than happy to answer because if you've got something that's going to last, take 15 years to, to exit, yeah. uh, all of a sudden there's an increased risk for us uh, because yes, we have to return money, uh, cash back to the investors. We can't just say, Hey, we've also got this great position. 
uh, and we've done very well. Uh, they're expecting yeah. us to uh, be liquid and return it back to them at the end of the fund life. So this would be another thing in terms of the entrepreneur preparing themselves, basically saying, okay, if I'm going with this particular VC, um, the life of their fund that they have left is, what, seven years? That yep. means I have seven years to help work towards an exit for that particular investor. Yep, and I, I think uh, as founders, don't be afraid to ask whatever questions you might have regarding that. And then to the points earlier on portfolio management, etc. cetera, uh, you know, we're gonna ask you a lot of questions, but come to the table with your own, make them tough. Like we honestly don't mind as well. I don't think it, it has to be skewed. I think we had a tough question earlier on that was what is the purpose of your investment? Great <laughs> <laughs> right point one, Isabella. Um, exits. You guys uh, I mean, I think it talks to both of this. The purpose of our investment is, you know, we have two customers. We've got investors on one side and founders on the other. And we want a win-win situation for both. Um, yeah. uh, exits. Um, typical life of a fund is seven to ten years. Um, however, I would just echo the point that um, this does not mean that a founder, if they take money from venture capital, has to exit within that time frame. Okay. Um, we have had our first fund um, is a vintage of 2016, meaning uh, we started deploying capital in 2016, so now it's about six years on. And um, we have chosen not to exit in five of our companies because we th still think there's upside. And in the three yeah. that we have exited, um, all but uh, there's actually been Two as there's four companies that have exited out of two been exits where the founders have elected to sell the company, and then the other two has have been secondaries. So for example, Tiger Global um, bought our shares in a company, and awesome. that is like a very likely outcome. So I wouldn't tie um, having to sell the business to the life of a fund. Okay, so it's not necessarily that you have to be. No. thinking oh i've got to conjure up this sale somehow no okay but it does help to be aware that some funds might do that i don't think funds typically require founders to i mean um there are specific circumstances i think that you just have to know that there is a fund will likely look for a liquidity event yeah. in the time frame and that liquidity event can come from a number of different ways okay so you just need to be aware of it, but yeah. not necessarily fret too much about it. No. Awesome. Now, Kate, you're in debt, so is there such a thing as an exit for you? I mean, how does it work? Because I guess you, you also need to extract cash from the business, but you have a different um, investment model. Yeah, so we're remunerated like via interest. So yep. we're collecting that fixed return over the lifetime of our loan. And look, when it comes to our board position, if we're on board, we're going to take a board observer rather than a voting right. So we're not there to push the company through to exit we're just a mere spectator okay awesome well i think that just about wraps it up so firstly i want to say a huge thanks to all of you uh, for coming in today on this rainy uh, monday morning to spend a little time going through a little bit about your world and i'm sure everyone's going to get a huge amount of value out of learning a little bit more about what it's like to be a vc what the challenges that you face and obviously to be better prepared uh, when they want to reach out to you so uh, if it's okay with you we're going to stick your contact details um, for the respective places that you work um, somewhere on the web page that this thing will end up on so that you know, people who have ideas can reach out to you early because I do pick up on what we've said that that's a good thing for them to do 
And there's really not much else but me to thank you again and say that's pretty much the end of this episode. So thank you very much for listening and stay tuned because we will be doing more interesting podcasts about things affecting entrepreneurs in the future. So thanks very much. Thanks for having us.